also from the time I was growing up, as continue to evolve, it needs love, it needs family traditions, it needs culture, it needs blackness, it needs spirit, it needs feeling good. I'm Tiffany, and this is Real Food Reads, the monthly book club from Real Food Media, where we get to dive into some of the best books on food, agriculture, politics, and culture with the authors themselves. I'm thrilled to close out 2019 with the amazing Lazarus Lynch. Lazarus is an entrepreneur, musician, chef, cooking show host, and more. And he's here to talk to us today about his premier cookbook, Son of a Southern Chef, Cook with Soul. Thanks for joining us, Lazarus. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I, I, I love that you're doing this, and I'm so glad to be part of it. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so for those who haven't seen the book yet, um, take a second, Google it, because um, the image will just like let you know exactly what to expect from the book. What you'll see is just all this bold and funky imagery that shows delicious food in ways that are almost irreverent. Like food is shown how we actually experience it, right? Like not super pristine and immaculately styled where it's too pretty to eat, but like in a way that we actually eat it. So I see like it and when I'm flipping through your book, there's like a lot of like your hands in them. There's half eaten chicken, like smears of creamed corn and like lots of dripping sauces, like even dripping sauces on your face. Um, <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> it's really fun and funky. And the recipes themselves are written as if from, like, your best friend or someone who you wish was your friend but is, like, way too cool. And then they write you something and you realize they're super down to earth and laid back, too. And so the art direction of the photography in the book and then the recipes with they're written really create something that's appealing to people um, who aren't even interested in cooking but who just, like, love it for the sake of the art. So thank you for doing that. I thank you for explaining it so beautifully. I mean, it's... It's always interesting to hear other people's perspectives about the work that you contribute to the world, and especially in the food space, where I feel like, you know, people have sort of an expectation with cookbooks of what it is and what it should be. And I and I like that with my book, um, I'm sort of breaking down a lot of those barriers that I wasn't even aware of um, completely when I was writing it. <laughs> So let's dig into your book a little bit more. So the book is called Son of a Southern Chef, and that isn't just the name of your cookbook. It's also the name of your brand. Um, And Lazarus, you already have such a strong name. Like Lazarus Lynch is a pretty epic name, and yet you branded yourself as Son of. Can you tell us a little bit more about who the Southern Chef is and why it was important for you to call this book that and to brand yourself as the Son of a Southern Chef? Um, My dad... My dad is actually the southern chef that I speak of in the title of my my brand. Um, you know, I started cooking when I was really young. I started cooking probably around the age of eight or nine. Um, and growing up in New York City, that's pretty normal because, you know, you usually have parents who are working parents. And unless they're very wealthy or, you know, upper middle class, able to afford a nanny or a babysitter, the kids are usually coming home after school and, you know, warming up some hot water to make ramen. So that was sort of like my introduction to cooking. But, you know, all of my siblings, I'm one of five, and we were all encouraged to go to the stove, and we were always encouraged to sort of be creative. When I was 10 years old, I my dad opened up his restaurant. It was his first restaurant called Baby Sister Soul Food, and it was named after his mom, um, who was an amazing cook. I never got to meet her, uh, my grandmother, Margaret, uh, Margaret Lynch. But uh, he named it after her, and he created all these soul food recipes and shared it at the restaurant. Now, I had known my dad to cook, 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 but I, I didn't know 
that he could scale it and it could become a restaurant and have this whole narrative and, you know, people come and he has customers and he has his regulars and he really built his business. And, you know, from an early age, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. It wasn't until I went to high school, I went to a school called Food and Finance High School and did that for four years in Manhattan. And that is legitimately a high school and it's legitimately a culinary school. People are just like, how does that work? You know, so half of our day, usually like a quarter of our day um, dedicated to cooking and food and research and history of food. And then the other half or three quarters of our day were dedicated to academia. And I was catering on the weekends. I was volunteering. I was um, working in restaurant kitchens, getting real world experience at the age of like 14, 15, 16. And so when I decided I was going to go to college and um, I really didn't know what to do. I felt like I had experienced such a whirlwind of opportunities and exposure in the culinary field as a high school student. And I just didn't know necessarily how to parlay that into a career because I was very clear that I, I didn't want to be a restaurant chef like my dad. I was very clear that that wasn't the way that I wanted to express myself creatively. You know, I said I was going to study nutrition. And two years into that, which is a really long time to be studying something, and then discover that it's not really for you. I discovered that it wasn't for me. I decided to switch gears, switch into communication. And then that wasn't really working out. So I switched into media. And then I kind of found my place. You know, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who walk into their purpose and the people that sort of back into their purpose. For me, it was sort of like I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I just didn't know exactly academically how to approach it. Um, so Son of a Southern Chef really became the story of how I started cooking. And I had a professor on campus, Tammy Kresge, who, uh, you know, I came to her for career advice. And I said, Tammy, just help me, help me figure out my life. Like, can you fix me, fix my life? Kind of thing. And Tammy was like, well, I don't have the answers. I can't give you the answers. But what I can do is help you understand your story, help you understand, like, all the pieces that got you to where you are. And maybe from that, you could sort of figure out where you're going. And so, you know, it was like a couple of days after meeting with Tammy that I realized, oh, I'm the son of a Southern chef. Obviously, like, that had a huge impact on me wanting to start cooking, and that's what I decided to call my brand. Mm -hmm. And I really love in the intro of your book, you talk so much about your dad and the impact that he had on you and on the community, and you really bring you bring your dad out a lot in this book and your whole family, really, um, but it really pays homage to the fact that you are a son of a Southern chef, and I love, I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So your book is referred to as a soul food Bible. Um what does soul food mean to you? Well, I'm going to preface first by answering the question by saying I did not call it. <laughs> Someone else did, and it was on the back of the book. And a couple of weeks before it came out in print, I was like, okay, I guess this is this is a soul food Bible. I guess that's what we're going to call it. <laughs> you know, soul food from the time I was growing up um, and to now, um, as continue to evolve as sort of like what it means, um, you know, first thoughts are it means love, it means family, it means family traditions, it means culture, it means blackness, it means um, it means spirit, it means, you know, it means feeling good. You know, I think that there's a full tapestry of, of words that come to mind, emotions that come to mind, that when I think about soul food, you know, I also think about music, I think about my ancestors, my grandmother, I think about 
her mother and her father, people who have never met before and their only point of contact being food. Mm. My grandmother, I never met her, but I know her potato salad. I know her pound cake. I know her macaroni and cheese. And it's the same because someone told me this tastes exactly like hers and because they watched her make it and because my father watched her make it and because it, 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 the story was just sort of passed down and here we are in 2019 and it, I'm so far removed from the physics of who they are, but not far removed from the spirit of who they are. That's what's so powerful about soul food. It is different um, from other cultures and cuisines because other cultures and cuisines typically have been written or had some kind of documentation and record for a lot of um, things that have happened and, you know, or, or have been, you know, pretty stable in terms of culturally, you know, Japanese people, for example, in Japan or mm-hmm. um, Chinese cuisine, you know, it's like, we know where these people are. We know where they live, we know where they come from. Soul food is an amalgamation of African descent and of African history and slavery and, and the nuance and the pain of that. Um, history is informed in the food and everything from okra to the black eyed peas to the sweet potato and where those things originate and where those things were grown in Africa in mainland and then how those things were taken to the Caribbean and to places like Jamaica and the West Indies. You know, we have a very complex history mm-hmm. and I think soul food, the way that I'm telling the story, um, has certainly given people an opportunity to ask questions about where it comes from and what it means and how it's evolving and how it's changing. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we've been talking a little bit, or you've been talking a lot about your father, your mother, your grandmother, um, this like history and ancestry of where you come from and who you come from. So can you kind of tell us a little bit more about, to you, what is the relationship between legacy and food? Wow, it's such a great question. Um, you know, when I think about legacy and, and food, you know, my, my heart goes to, um, you know, everything that I feel like I am today and the shoulders that I stand on, you know, I I think of my ancestors, I think of, um, my becoming and who I am, you know, and I think about the Negro spiritual, you know, God put a rainbow in the clouds and what that rainbow is, is are people who have uh, determined that the future can be better, the future can be brighter, mm-hmm. and that their lives um, matter and are significant, are important, and that the food story that they can tell are the stories that they want to write and are the stories that they want to curate, are the stories they want to tell from their own lips and not from the lips of others. And so when I think about legacy, specifically as it relates to like writing a book, you know, what was important for me was for my voice to not be um, whitewashed Mm. and for my voice to not be sort of muted by appeasing other people and making other people happy and comfortable. Um, And so editorially, you know, I can say proudly that there was very little pushback. Um, There was a lot of acceptance and a lot of encouragement for me to truly own my voice and own my story. And that's not always the case, especially with Black people and Black authors. Uh, you know, we have a story to tell because of who we are, where we come from. And we would like that the world be able to experience who we are um, through our eyes and without it being sort of washed down or, um, you know, sanitized. 
And so, and so I, I think about legacy and food as the entrance, the, the point for people to get an idea of who I am and what I'm about and what I love and who I love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I could be a gay man, I could be a queer man, I could be a straight man, I could be whoever I am, I could serve Allah or God or Jesus or nothing at all. And, mm-hmm. you know, we could still come together and sit at the same table and eat delicious food. And and the story and, and the, the, the life that I want to live and the life that you want to live all can happen together and simultaneously and food can be part of who we are and how we celebrate. You know, but I think that that was, that was not a part of my thinking growing up. It wasn't, it was very like segregated, you know, and I could even say that in my community, you know, we had rare representation of other kinds of people, other kinds of lives, even though I lived in New York City, but in my community, it was sort of like, no, the story that we were telling, the legacy that was sort of happening was the same one from 50 years ago. And either people were afraid to add a, a sentence to the page or add a chapter to the book. And so now that's changing. And I think that's what I'm doing in front of the Southern Shepherd in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely are. I, so I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. I just I got to meet you a few months ago um, at an event hosted by Chef Bryant Terry. And the event was called Black Queer Food. So at this event... Um, you were one of the featured panelists. And I remember when I first saw you, right, I walked up the stairs of the Moad and you were just like shining from within. And also because you're wearing this like hot pink and blue outfit, and I immediately was drawn to you um, and also tickled by the fact that our outfits had the same color scheme going on. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about queerness and how that comes up for you in your work and also your approach to work. I appreciate that question. Um, and that was a lovely event. And it felt so timely, um, and kudos to Bryant for organizing such an amazing panel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I think about queerness. It's funny because when the book came out, a lot of the questions that I got back was, oh, my God, this book is so queer and queer-friendly. And I, it sort of struck me by surprise because I didn't set out to create work that was, quote-unquote, queer or for queer readers only Mm -hmm. and I don't think that the response that I got was like oh this is exclusively for queer people I think that what was what was the the takeaway was sort of that my voice was uniquely my voice and it was ownable and it was here was someone who was owning his identity and owning his truth and it filtered through the the pages of the story Um, and so Mm -hmm. I, I feel very proud about that um, but I would say that it sort of has opened up a new conversation for me and for my work, um, and in many ways. So the first way is that as someone with a platform, people sort of look to me for inspiration and for hope, um, whether I sort of self-proclaim myself as, you know, an inspirational person or inspirational speaker or a motivating speaker. You know, people do come to my platform and experience inspiration and positivity, and so what's been really positive about that is in the queer space, um, there have been so many young kids and young people who've opened up, not just to me, but on their platforms about how the book has helped them to own their own identity, um, help them to step into the truth of who they are, 
um, and just helps empower them to live a bold life. Mm. Um, and so that's a really powerful takeaway from just putting myself out there, you know. And the other thing is that I've definitely become, you know, more of a voice and more political in terms of how I think about my work and how I think about my moves and specifically like where I'm placed in what media are at, in what landscape, you know, I'm very interested now in talking about how do we as black queer people celebrate ourselves and love ourselves and how do we create spaces and communities where we can champion that message and where we can see ourselves and other people um, and not be weaponized or demonized for who we are. And so, you know, that has led to a host of sort of conversations and essays and featured blog posts and guests on podcasts, you know, and so I'm really excited about that. And, you know, and just in terms of like how it informs my work, you know, I think that, again, I go back to legacy and I go back to, you know, what are the stories that I'm telling through food? And um, now that I've sort of expanded how I present my food and combining that with music and I'm combining that with fashion. Um, there are so many opportunities to reclaim and own my narrative. And so I'm very excited about that. And that's just sort of like a very general way of describing um, how massive an undertaking it is and also great a responsibility it is um, to my community to be able to um, ask for more transparency, be more transparent and, help people to, you know, live their truth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You were mentioning how people come to the platform, come to your platform for these messages of hope and positivity. And something else that really stood out to me about your book was that you used whole pages to really share messages of self-love and standing in one's power. Uh, for So, for example, on page 160, you, you, took, you take the whole page to say these messages, too. Um, so you said, you are worthy of self-appreciation, joy, and self-love. You are worthy of being treated with dignity and humanity. Make no apologies and walk in your worthiness. Why was it important for you to use this cookbook to share that and other similar messages? Mm, uh, I just I, I just want to sit with that for a second. Mm. Uh, that's really, really powerful um, worthiness. You know, when I talk about worthiness in the book, I talk about it from the place of wanting to be worthy, wanting to feel worthy, not quite being or feeling worthy in myself, but that as a mantra, as a, as a place, as a space that I want to exist in, but don't quite feel yet or don't quite know yet. Um, it, it's, a, it's about the journey of getting to that place where we can look at ourselves in the mirror every day and say, I'm worthy. I'm worthy to ask for more. I'm worthy to ask for what I need. I'm worthy to ask for what I want. And the universe and my ancestors and God will make those things happen for me because I'm worthy of them. Mm-hmm. So when I look back at why I wrote it, I don't even know that I can even take the credit for it because I do feel that in the process of writing a lot of those, uh, what started as, I think, tweets or what started as just sort of waking up in and, and meditation and, and writing those things down on paper somehow felt necessary to put in this book. Um, the only way I can sort of describe it is that it just felt necessary. Mm. Um, it felt necessary to include it. And we like to talk about food, and I say we as sort of like culturally, we like to talk about food as this thing that we go out to experience or, you know, this this very grand uh, 
thing that we pull from a garden and we source and harvest and prepare and there's all this nuance and beautiful alcohol and wine pairings and all these other things and you know we sort of celebrate all of that and we never talk about the folks who are in the seats Mm -hmm. the folks who are at the table and the value they bring and the the worthiness that I can even be at this table and that I'm worthy of eating all this delicious lamb and curry and spices and rice. And it's good for me to love food. It's good for my body to love food. It's good for me to have a good relationship with food rather than one that I, you know, a love-hate relationship with food. Mm-hmm. You know, and so those those things come from a spiritual place. And as someone who approaches my work from a very spiritual place, you know, I'm always in prayer, I'm always in meditation, I'm always asking for guidance in, in what I'm doing. Um, and that's really where I find the joy. That's really where I find the most peace is when I'm in the kitchen cooking, but I'm standing in a space of total gratitude. You know, there's another quote in the book that I wrote that says, um, you know, when gratitude is the first bite, you know, the food tastes great, mm-hmm. you know, or the food, food tastes better when gratitude is the first bite. Um, and so when I'm in that space, and it's not about, you, you know, trying to hit a certain mark or making sure the recipe comes out perfect or making sure that I'm getting enough calories today or just trying to do it because, you know, someone told me I should cook or, you know, out of obligation. But doing it from a space of gratitude, doing it from a space of worthiness, doing it from a space of appreciation, um, I think that's, that's full living. That's living life. That's experiencing life. Um, and, and that's why it's not necessary. I love that. Um, this kind of reminds me of, okay, so you're talking about worthiness and I know I get into my own head sometimes and I'm thinking about like what I'm going to cook. Like I'm happy to spend hours cooking if it's like for other people, but when it's for myself, I'm like, "Eh, I'll just have like a fried egg because I'm, I feel like it's too much effort, but really it's kind of like reframing, like, no, I'm worth the effort to do what I would do for other people. Um, and what I love about your recipes is that they are so accessible so that people not only like like going through them, they will like feel the love and the positivity coming out of it, but your recipes are accessible enough for people to just go and cook it. Um, there are some cookbooks where you have to like buy all these specialty ingredients and like pickle things months in advance before you can like actually get down to making the recipe. And Son of a Southern Chef is not that. You break things down for people by giving them the gravy or your tips on everything from like how to slice plantains or just describing what an ingredient is. Uh, my favorite description that I came across is the one of mascarpone cheese, which you said is an Italian cream cheese that tastes like sour cream and cream cheese made a baby. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I love so much how accessible your recipes are and that you give the gravy or these tips on ingredients and processes. And I'm just curious, why was it important for you to create a cookbook like this? You know, it's interesting. Um, and I, again, I really appreciate your feedback and takeaways from that. I mean, it makes me so happy anytime I hear someone say, you know, I this is approachable. But, you know, it, it was one of those things where when I wrote the book proposal, so for people that are listening who don't know how, how books usually are written, Either you're very, very well known and a publisher identifies you as someone who could tell a story potentially and they'll sort of hire a writer for you, or you are not really known and you write a book proposal. So that's what I did. I was I wrote a book proposal and um and chose, you know, 
Random House to do the book, and they chose my book. They wanted to do it. Um, but I would say my proposal is night and day from what actually became of the mm. book. And I think that's due to a lot of things. Obviously, it's due to me personally growing up and just sort of like no longer a college student um, and my personal maturity in life. But it also was like, it was totally the team of people who came around me and who supported me through it and who worked with me through it. You know, my creative partner, Anisha Sisodia, who photographed and designed and, um, you know, art directed the book. You know, she really is my right hand. She's my left hand. Sometimes she's my right toe, my left toe. Um, <laughs> but she brought such vision, such life to this project. Rafael, um, who did all the food styling. Lori Tannis, who did all of the crop styling. So it was really about, I said, here are the raw bones. Here are the raw elements. My other friend, Ashley, who did all the food testing with me. Um, Claudia Sadozzi. I mean, it was just a team of talented people. Everyone came together. My stylist, Keon Mullins, um, you know, I said to him, I want this book to feel like a magazine. I want it to feel like you're opening Vogue, you know? Mm. And so it was those kinds of conversations over coffee, you know, long hours and well into the midnight, you know, it was documents upon documents <laughs> and Pinterest boards of like what's inspiring us, um, as well as literally tasting food and having tastings at the house and like having folks come over and give me some feedback. But I will say that this is definitely um, what what is the book today was not what I wrote um, three years ago in a proposal. Hmm. Um, it's really a lot more, and that's really exciting. Yeah, uh, this book seems to me is like the it's the equivalent of an open door, like an open door to enjoy food and enjoy art, and an open door sort of into your life. Your recipes are super personal, and you tell stories through them. And that's what I love about this cookbook and cookbooks like this, right, is like through recipes and the ingredients and techniques that are used, we can learn so much about what was going on in the world at that time or in the author's world at that time. I mean, that's the beauty of cooking. And I think with recipes that people have written or have gotten from their ancestors is that recipes are like a delicious little time capsule that you can experience over and over again. So, <laughs> so is there a recipe that helps to tell the story of who you are now? Wow, I think there's so many. You know, I think it's my, um, you know, Nutella, bacon, banana, grilled cheese, which is totally excessive, but it, it does sort of inform me in terms of, like, how where I went to school and living in Buffalo, New York for four years of my life. And my father passed away while I was in college, and I was a junior in college, and he passed. Mm -hmm. And that was a very difficult time. And so the food that I remember eating in Buffalo was like a lot of these uh, nostalgic sort of comfort foods that were available. Um, and the Nutella baking banana grilled cheese sandwich was something that was sold at this place um, in Buffalo, this like grilled cheese spot that everybody went to. And I just sort of reinterpreted it and made it my own. Mm -hmm. um, I'd also say my dad, Sammy Croquette, um, our family shrimp and grits that I put coconut milk in mm. um, and lots of cheddar cheese. Yeah. Um, it's really delicious and rich. You know, it's it's also things like, you know, my Bama mud pie mousse, which is um, essentially an Oreo crusted pie with a um, chocolate mousse in the center. Um, and then I think there's like a topping of um, like whipped cream and pecans and toffee pieces, mm. um, which also feels very original to 
my roots from Alabama. Um, and it also feels like, you know, the soil and the mud pie, it, it has this sort of story of like coming from the dirt, coming from the ground and all the metaphors around that and how it can be sweet and delicious and tasty. Um, it's the end point of a dinner. Generally, you eat dessert after, except if you're my brother, you can eat dessert first. <laughs> um, but it's like that final sweet note. And, um, you know, I think as Black people, we were sort of trampled upon. We were, we were the dirt and the mud. We were the mud and the dirt. And so being able to sort of repurpose that and make it something delicious and tasty is also, by definition, what full food is. So those are the, I think those are a couple of the recipes that speak to me. Awesome. Thank you. And you just did a beautiful job of describing how they relate to you. Um, so obviously your recipes and this cookbook is a way that you share your message, but there's another way that you do that, and that is through music. Um, are there any similarities in the process of creating food or creating this cookbook and also creating music? You know, I think the answer is yes, and I think most people um, will agree with this thing when I say that, you know, music and food go together. Um, you know, what's a restaurant, what's going out to the restaurant without any playlist, you know, in the backdrop? What's a, you know, having a good night without, you know, your favorite song coming on? So mm -hmm. I think that it is one and the same where it hits you creatively. But I think in terms of the creative process of writing a recipe and writing a song or writing a recipe and writing lyrics, um, it's, it's really the same ideas, you know, just expressed in different ways. Um, you know, there probably is a very clever way of describing what I'm saying, but I just think that, you know, when I write a recipe, I'm thinking about the flavor on my tongue. I'm thinking about what it's going to feel like to chew it. And, and am I going to crunch on something? You know, do I need something like a nut or a, a breadcrumb on top of this piece of fish, you know, to kind of give it added texture? Um, I'm thinking about the sound of that. I'm thinking about the feeling of that in my mouth. It's a very visceral sort of imaginative process as someone who creates recipes. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is the consumer as I'm writing a recipe. And I'm thinking about what will give them satisfaction, what will be easy and approachable for them, but maybe also challenge them to think about an ingredient in a new way or in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the same way I think about music. When I'm writing a song, you know, I'm generally like so in a zone when I'm writing music that I'm not always considering the listener. Um, but after the fact, I'm under I understand that the spirit of the sound of what I wrote or whatever came out of that writing session um, takes people on a journey, um, sonically and emotionally and spiritually. And both are like huge responsibilities to be able to cook for someone and feed them. And, you know, you're feeding their soul, you're feeding their body, but to also be able to give them music. It's another extension of serving people. Um, so I think serving people is sort of the common denominator in all mm -hmm. of it. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's one of the reasons that I, in 2020, um, we'll be doing more music and combining the world of food and music. Awesome. Um, and that's what I'm excited about. Yeah. <laughs> that's super exciting. <laughs> Thank you. It's pretty obvious that you are a creative. What sort of world are you creating with the work that you do? Mm. You know, I, I'm creating a world where there are no limits. There are no um, there are no excuses. 
it's unapologetic, it's free, it's um, it's total liberation. Um, it's creatively liberation. It's creative liberation. It's um, sound liberation. It's body liberation. It's uh, liberation of self. It's self love. It is um, you know it is the place where you can be your true self and your full self and your happiest self. Um, and that, that is the world that I'm working to create more of. And I see that happening already and I feel it happening in my own life. And I see that happening for the lives of folks who, um, engage with my work. And the last thing that I want to say is that the most important thing that we can do is to love ourselves and to treat ourselves with respect and love. Um, and that's everything from how we talk to ourselves about ourselves, how we treat other people, how we treat ourselves, how we give to ourselves, how we allow ourselves to experience things like pleasure and love and vulnerability and sadness and how we're present in all of those spaces. That's really how we experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of life. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Real Food Reads and for closing out a year with your new hosts, myself, Tiffany Patton, and Tanya Kirsten. As always, you can find this and other episodes of Real Food Reads anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. It helps to get the word out about all of the incredible authors we get the privilege of speaking with.